In this message, Pastor John Schreiner focuses on the Old Testament figure of Joseph. This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship Summer Leadership Training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. We hope this is encouraging. All right. Well, tonight we're talking about one of my favorite guys, one of, one of the best. We're talking about Joseph. And uh, we're going to look at how, how God use Joseph and how it looks to Jesus, obviously, but this has been great in my understanding of my own life and my understanding of forgiveness. It's been very instrumental for me, uh, his life. I, I, I like the theme that we're going with this summer that you guys have chosen, typology, seeing Jesus on every page, and I like it because it, I feel like it extrapolates into life. You know, we can see Jesus in everything. You look around, you look at the, the, the sun, you look at the moon, you look at the, I mean, people, you say, Wow. God made them, or God cares about them. Jesus died. I mean, it's just, or I stub my toe, and I think, oh, man, my life's not that bad. Jesus loves me and saved me. <laughs> um, so I know that this is it's much more than that, though. You know, you look at, you're talking about Luke 24 and the road to amaze as, as these, these two guys are talking, and they're confused, and Jesus comes, and he corrects them. He says, how foolish are you? How slow, I probably didn't say it quite like that, but how foolish are you? How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So in all the scriptures, he says, they come back, look, they go back to me. Moses, the prophets, they're all pointing back to me. We're going even before them. We're going to go to Joseph. It's going to be pretty clear that, that, that this points back to Jesus. And I think this can get confusing. We could, look, we could try to get too detailed with this. Like every time you read about a tree, you, you say, oh, that must be the cross. Or you look at a number and you think, oh, that's a number. It's three, it's seven, it's perfect. It's, and, then you, and then you multiply it and then you divide it. And then, and then Jesus is returning seven years ago. Now, that's what Harold Camping did. It was very confusing. So we don't want to do that. As we read scripture, it's, it's good to know that, that what's written is... It's, understandable. It's what's intended. Uh, the most likely meaning of a text is its obvious meaning. And so that's the first way that you should read anything in scripture. Now, Jesus goes back and he says to these guys, but listen, hey, all the way, all the way back, you, you keep looking back, they, they point, they're going to point to me. There, there is this connection, this thread that links through. And so it's not that you can't look for more and say, oh, okay, I, I see there's a next step, but it should be clear. It should be like, oh, that makes sense. It, it continues uh, how it's supposed to. I think about how, how scripture connects a little bit like the movie Avengers Endgame. Uh, so I'm not going to read anything. Don't worry about it. If you haven't seen it yet, you shouldn't be worried about that anyway. But um, <clears throat> so Avengers Endgame, if you just watched that movie, you just went and you'd never seen any of the Avengers movies, you could show up and you would enjoy it if you like that kind of movie, right? There's action. There's good versus evil. There's love. There's loss. It's a great movie. Now, that's if, even without seeing the rest, but... When you go to that movie and you've seen the 20 movies that lead up to that movie, all these storylines, they all get, they've all been intertwined and then they start to come to completion and all of a sudden it's, it's a fuller picture. It's, it's much prettier and it's designed and it's on purpose. And what's cool is, is what you see with the story of our Redeemer, what you see the story of Christ, his life, it's been planned. It's not just a story, it's his life. It's planned. It all fits together. And so we see that we're talking about typology. I like Matt Hirma's description. Two weeks ago, he said, you see an old, a hero in the Old Testament, somebody that's lifted up, that person is a type of Jesus. There's some foreshadowing of Jesus happening. Peter Leihart, he wrote, the great novelists, 
The biblical writers repeat a theme, a word, or image throughout a book, and it accumulates significance as it goes. It gets more and more important. The more you read it, the more you understand it. It gets bigger and bigger. And the greatest story is what Jesus did on the cross. And so, with Joseph, there isn't just one instant that you think, this is Jesus. There's a, a pinnacle, for sure, but there's all these little cool ties that happen as the story continues until you get all the way to the end of this interaction with his brothers. And so we're going to be looking at Joseph and how he connects to our Redeemer. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that you love us so much that you'd put us here at this time in this place. I pray that you would help me communicate well. I pray that I would uh, explain clearly. I pray that we'd all have ears to hear and eyes to see. We'd understand ourselves better. We'd understand you better. We'd get the cross. Lord, I pray it would affect us beyond this evening. Amen. Okay. So Joseph. What's interesting about Joseph is the story we're going to go back further than Joseph to see how God is working this. You go all the way back to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, we have God talking to Abram. He's not even Abraham yet. He's Abram. <clears throat> he, says, he says, know this for certain. Uh, this is Genesis 15, verse 13. Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So Abram, what's going to happen? Your people, your kids, these things that I'm promising you, they're going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But don't worry, I'm going to miraculously save them. They're going to leave with all of these possessions. They're going to leave wealthy. And so Abraham is Joseph's great-grandpa. So this is, his great-grandpa receives this promise from God. But the thing is, they're not in Egypt. And so as they hear this, it, it, it wouldn't have connected. They'd been like, well, how are we going to get there? He, he probably didn't ask that, but he could have. Your offspring is going to be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that doesn't belong. So it doesn't say Egypt, but a land that's not theirs. And he's going to miraculously save them. <clears throat> and so before he's even a twinkle in anyone's eye, God's saying, Joseph's going to come. And you're going to get led to this other land. And then I'm going to do some amazing, amazing, crazy stuff. And so it's prophesied before him. And so God's plan, it was for Abraham to have, Abraham to have Isaac, Isaac to have Jacob, who is also known as Israel, to have Joseph. This is, this is the line. And so it gets set in motion. The plan gets set in motion. And so there's this, this, this cool genealogy. And from Israel's kids come the 12 tribes, and those are Joseph's brothers. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. There's all his brothers, and, the, and then Joseph's tribe is Manasseh and Ephraim. So you've got this all combined. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at, we can't really talk about what happens with Joseph without really telling his story. And so I'm going to do it. I'm going to be cutting a few things out, and I'm going to try and not twist the scriptures. Uh, but we're going to come to... Uh, you have to understand. You have to, to hear the full breath to get the significance of what happens at the end. So we're starting in Genesis chapter 37. And right away, Joseph, he's this young man. He's 17 years old. And in verse 3, we have, we have his dad. It says, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. And so if you want an example of what not to do as a parent, this is it. Don't love one kid more than the others. And you're going to see why. <clears throat> but he loved him. And why did he love him? We don't know for sure, but there's some assumptions, some, some, some educated guesses. Like, 
the one he really wanted to marry, Rachel, this is the firstborn of Rachel. And so Rachel has Joseph, and Rachel has Benjamin, and she loves, he loves his firstborn, Joseph. So much so that he gave him this amazing coat of many colors. Uh, I have a sweater that I often wear that reminds me of Joseph. And uh, I call it the Nintendo sweater, because in high school I always wore it while I played the NES. That's how old I am. Um, I was more Sega Genesis, just so you know, but I still played the Nintendo. Anyway, all right. Um, <clears throat> So he gives him this coat of many colors, and it just makes his brothers more jealous. His brothers hate him more. Good work, Dad. And then Joseph, I don't think Joseph did this on purpose. My, my belief is that Joseph, he's not poking the bear, but his brothers hated him so much that, that they wouldn't even speak peaceably to him. They couldn't have family dinners, I don't think, because it would have gone terribly. And so Joseph, in his foolishness, he has this dream and in his dream, there's, they're binding up wheat, and so they're tying up their wheat, and, and, and in his dream, his brothers tie up some wheat, and then their wheat comes over and bows down to his wheat, uh, and he tells his brothers, guys, you wouldn't believe the dream I had. What, Joseph? <laughs> I had, we, were, we were wheat, okay? And you bowed down to me. What, you're gonna, we're going to bow down to you? And they were upset. They, verse 8, it says, are you really going to rule over us? They hated him even more. So he tells his brothers to stream, and he was young, he was excitable. But then he has another dream, and this dream, now the sun, the moon, the stars, they all also come, and they bow down to him. And Joseph, instead of holding it to himself, or maybe just telling his dad, he tells his brothers again. He tells his dad, his dad's like, oh, man, Joseph. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, there's something to this. And the story goes on, and his brothers, they go out, and they're tending the flock. They're shepherds, and they're out doing their thing, eating the grass. The animals are eating the grass. And his dad says, hey, I want you to go. Talk to, talk to your bros. See if they're, see if they're doing okay. Uh, make sure they're not eating the grass. And so he goes out. <laughs> and uh, and he, he goes to the first place. They're not there. He goes to Dothan. He, he's traveling a long ways. And his brothers, they see him coming. They're like, oh, here comes Joseph. And this is what they say. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Wow. That's some wicked, wicked brothers. Uh, Joseph, he, he could learn some things with his tongue. He might come off a little self-righteous. But, but there's actually no example of, of Joseph talking about his sin. So pretty much everyone that you read about, it talks about their sin to some degree. Joseph, it, it never alludes to anything him doing as sin. And so his brothers, though, they see him, they're like, oh, mm, here comes that dreamer. Let's get rid of him. He won't be daddy's favorite anymore. And so he gets closer, and they collectively throw him in a pit that he would die. First, they strip him of his robe, the Technicolor dream sweater, the Nintendo sweater, and take it off. And they think he's going to die of dehydration, starvation, maybe exposure. <clears throat> and then they sit down to eat dinner. And I just think about the, the awkwardness and the crassness of his brothers. So they, they do this terrible thing, and then they just go, let's eat. And as they're eating, they see, they see these slave traders, the Ishmaelites. And they, they say, oh, we got a better idea. We could kill him, but we could make some money. And so they, they go, and they, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And off goes Joseph. He's now a slave. And he makes it to Egypt, where he gets sold to Potiphar. And Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, so he's high-ranking to some degree. He's a big shot. 
And so this is, this is the, the end of chapter 37. We've made it one chapter of 13. But something really strange happens, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this. In chapter 38, so it's actually 14 chapters, are telling this story. And it's all this story about Joseph, except chapter 38. So it starts one chapter in, and it totally stops, and it does this really weird thing. And it starts talking about Judah and Tamar. And this is compelling because uh, it's like, why, why would God do this? Why would we start the story that's, that's really just one continuous story and then all of a sudden stop it? And it's, the reason is that the story that we're reading about is not really a story about Joseph. The story that we're reading about is really a story about a redeemer. And so this whole story, it's pointing to Jesus. It's not just about Joseph, it's about Jesus and it has to go back to Judah because Judah is the line that Jesus is going to come from. He's going to come from, from Judah. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. And so chapter 38, it's just a description of how Judah and Tamar came to have a child. That would later lead to David. That would later lead to Jesus. And so I like this. It's, it's just a subtle reminder. That's right. This story, it's about Joseph, but really we're, we're, getting, it. we're getting to Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And so we go through that, and then we come back right again, chapter 39. So the narrative starts. And he's in Potiphar's house, and God blesses him. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and the Lord made everything he did successful. It's all good. He's the man. He's running the house, this young guy doing his thing. And he was over everything. He had, he could, he could use whatever he needed. It was almost like he wasn't a slave, but he was. He still didn't have his freedom. And something that was off limits was Potiphar's wife. Now, Potiphar's wife, she probably had everything too, but what was off limits to her? Joseph. She couldn't have Joseph. And so what did she want? She wanted Joseph. And so she keeps trying to seduce him. She keeps trying to get at him. Come here, Joseph. No. Hey, sit by me, Joseph. No. Come here, Joseph. No. He turns her down and turns her down. And then in verse 9, he says, How could I do such a great evil? And Potiphar's blessed him. Potiphar's been good to him. So he could have said, how could he do such, an evil, such a great evil and, and take from Potiphar his wife? He could have said that. But you see a little bit of the heart of Joseph here. He says, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? How could I wrong my God? And so Potiphar's wife, he's mad. She accuses him of rape. And so he goes to prison. So he's falsely accused. He heads to prison. Do nothing wrong, prison. Verse 21, it says, But the Lord is with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And there could have been a couple of different ways to look at this. The first way would have been, Lord, come on. How could I do such a great deal? I didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, and this is how you reward me? You sent me these dreams, and then, and then my brothers sell me as a slave? You are not fair. But he doesn't. He takes the other route. He gets to prison, and God blesses him. And I think what he's saying is, wow, even in prison, you're taking care of me. Even in prison, I can be thankful for how you watch over me and you protect me. And so in prison, he, he, he rises through the prison ranks. I don't know what that means. Um, <clears throat> but he starts to help, and, and he's over areas. And, and so when two of Pharaoh's officers come to prison, he becomes their servants. You have the cupbearer and you have uh, the baker. 
And they come to prison, and I don't know if they made a bad batch or what the deal was, why they came together. But they're there for a period of time. He's serving them. And then uh, he has a dream. The, the cupbearer has a dream. And they're just saying, hey, who could, could someone interpret this for me? And Joseph's like, my God, my God can. He said, okay, interpret it for me. And, and he says, well, I have to make me a promise. If I interpret this for you, you have to go back and tell Pharaoh what I did. He said, all right, no, no problem. And so he interprets it, and then the cupbearer goes back two days later, just like Joseph says, and he's back with Pharaoh. And the baker's like, oh, good news, I had a dream too. Except for his dream wasn't so happy, the baker died. The baker was killed. Joseph accurately prophesied it. He had nothing to tell Pharaoh. But what I want to think about is Joseph now has been imprisoned for 10 years, more than 10 years. From age 17 until now, he's been in prison. Think about your life. What were you doing in 2009? What's happened in your life between 2009 and today? A lot. I'm sure there's been some pretty significant life events. Uh, In my life, let's see, 2009, I was married. I got married in 2009. I got seven kids since then. Uh, I cheated, we we adopted two, but it doesn't matter. The point is seven kids have joined my family. (laughs) Joseph, he's been enslaved for a decade. So finally, he goes and he gets his big break because Pharaoh has a dream. He's like, can someone interpret this dream? And the cupbearer didn't do what he was supposed to do. He said nothing. I think he forgot. Kind of selfish. And and, But Pharaoh has a dream. And oh, that's right. The cupbearer now remembers. Somebody can interpret dreams. I know someone. I got a guy who who can help you with that. Okay, who's the guy? Joseph, he's in prison. Prison? Prison. All right, bring him up. And so he goes up and Joseph, Pharaoh is like, hey, Joseph, I hear that you can interpret dreams. To which Joseph, Jesus jukes him. This is awesome. He's like, oh, no, no, I can't interpret dreams. God can interpret dreams. Pharaoh's <laughs> like, all right, tell me about it. <clears throat> so he does. Joseph explains, tell me your dream. Okay, this is what it means. Seven years, you're going to have Tons of food, plenty. You're going to have grain. You're going to have your animals going to reproduce. They're going to be big and fat. And it's going to be awesome. But then seven more years are going to be famine. They're going to be terrible. Your people are going to starve. And if you don't prepare, if you don't choose a discerning and wise man, it will not go well for you. But if you do, you're lucky that you have me slash have God telling you, telling me what to tell you. So then in Genesis 41, verse 39, here's what it says. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning as wise and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I'm placing over you the land of, I'm placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine garments, placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in the second chariot, and servants call up before him, Make way! He placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or a foot in the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Paneah, and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. And so Joseph, at 17, is imprisoned by his sold slavery to his brothers. He's imprisoned. And it's now been 13 years. It took two years for the cupbearer 
over two years for the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh. And so at, at about age 30, he begins his public service. 30 years old, he's now over everything. People can't even raise their hand, lift their foot without you. And this is where the story gets interesting because all that I've just talked about, that, that's just the first four chapters. And like I said, it's, it's 14 chapters. And most of the rest of the story is this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. And there's all these like little weird nuanced things. And so I'm not getting into all the details that happen. So forgive me, it's worth reading on your own time. Uh, I'm going to get as much as I can, as much as we need, I think, to, to make the point. So chapters 42 through 50 is this, this exchange. What happens is in, in year one, his brothers in Canaan and his dad, they run out of food. One year one of the famine. They run out of food and they say, hey, we've heard, we've heard that, that Egypt's got food. You guys, my sons, you go there. Oh, but not Benjamin. You better save Benjamin. He's my new favorite. Okay. So they, the rest of them go. Benjamin stays. And they run into Joseph, and, and they say, hey, can we buy some food from you? We'll, we'll give you money. And they don't recognize that Joseph is their brother. They thought he's dead. He's long gone. But Joseph knows. These are my brothers. He sees them, and he understands. And he could have struck them down, could have killed them, could have ended their miserable, wicked lives right there on the spot. And I wouldn't have blamed him. That's not what Joseph does, though. He loves brothers. In fact, he, he blesses them more. He sends food back, and then he sneaks all the money back in their bags. And so they all go back with their money and with the food to their dad. And he says, if you come back, bring Benjamin. Really? Yeah. He didn't say my brother. He said, bring Benjamin. Okay. So another year goes by, and they have to come back again. And this time they bring Benjamin. His dad didn't want to send him, but they do. He sends him back. And and again, Joseph says nothing. Benjamin also does not recognize him. And uh, he loads her bags of food and he sends them back on their way. And he hasn't told them yet. I think it's kind of strange, but he hasn't told them yet that he's their brother. But he wants Benjamin to be there. This is his, his full brother. It's Rachel's son, his brother. And so he, he wants him to come back. And so he puts this, this cup in his bag as, to make it look like he stole it and he's going to have to come back. And so this whole saga ensues and they all come back. And he says, you can all go home, but I want to leave Benjamin here with me. He has to stay. And Judah says like, hey, listen, if you take Benjamin, my dad will die. He'll have a heart attack. He can't handle it. Take me, send Benjamin back. This is not, a, it's not going to work out. I remember he's saying, your own, he doesn't know this, he's saying your dad will die if you leave Benjamin here. So he's in a predicament. What's, what's Joseph going to do? They don't know yet. And so he, he, he starts to weep. He starts to cry. I think weeping is different than crying. He, he's letting it all loose. And he reveals his identity to his brothers. This is what he says. Genesis 45, as he weeps, awkwardly, the ruler of the nation is weeping before these, these foreign men. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near. I'm Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold to Egypt. Quickly, he says, now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there'll be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it's not you who sent me here, but God. 
He's made me the father to Pharaoh, the lord of this entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So God sent me ahead, of your head to preserve life, and he wants to save this remnant. He wants to save you, the children of the promise of Abraham. Can you imagine the terror and surprise of these brothers? Oh, man. This is the most powerful person in the world, at least that they would have known existed. And they've lived, his brothers have lived with the guilt of their decision ever since they did it. Maybe they thought in their jealousy, if we kill dad's favorite, he'll like us more. Like this person will be out of the picture. But that's not how sin works. Sin separates, it divides. And so I think that every time they did something good and their dad said, good job, Judah. I'm proud of you, Reuben. I think that what they thought in their mind is, if you only knew, if you really knew about me, if you knew what I had done to your favorite, you couldn't say that, you wouldn't say that. There's no possible way. I think they lived with guilt these last 13 years. And now they're confronted with their guilt. It makes me, reminds me of David. And David, he, he sleeps with Bathsheba. He has an, a, an adulterous relationship. And then he tries to trick Uriah into being with his wife so that he doesn't find out that she's pregnant. It doesn't work. And so he kills Uriah. And so David, King David does these really messed up things. But he writes this psalm. And it's a description of what happens when sin is unresolved. Psalm 32. He said, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person when the Lord does not charge him with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle. When I kept my, when I kept my sin silent, that's what he's talking about. My bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. What does sin do? It just burdens you. It weighs you down. It, it sucks all the energy out of you. And you've probably experienced that. I'm sure that there's been times in your life when, when there's been sin. And, 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 it, and you knew where you were guilty. And you knew where you were wrong. And you didn't want to deal with it. And so what happens when we don't deal with sin is it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And David says, my bones were brittle. I just had, I was totally, I was done. I was dead. I was tired. I was beaten and broken. And what's, what's, Silly about that is that if, if we repent, we look to God and, and, and we allow our, our transgression to be forgiven, our sin to be covered, how joyful is that man? The burden it's relieved is taken off. And I think these brothers, that they're experiencing the weight of their sin, that the, the guilt, and they're probably ashamed, they're proud, they don't want to face the consequences. They're in self-preservation mode, and now they're exposed. Their brother's alive. He wasn't killed. They told their father. They dipped his, his, his sweater in blood and brought it back and said that he got killed by an animal. Now their dad's going to know he wasn't actually killed. The guilt. But Joseph doesn't take vengeance. Instead, he weeps. He weeps for his brothers. He feeds them. And he says, listen, God, God's got his hand in this. God sent me here to save lives. And specifically, he sent me here to save your lives. That's what he did to save this remnant that had been promised to Abraham. And so eventually, Joseph's whole family moves to Egypt. They all come, and he, they, they give him this prime, prime shepherding land. They're all taken care of like royalty. Even his dad comes, <clears throat> things are good. And Joseph, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind. He gives them all these things, 
And then to his dad and to his brothers, to all his brothers, not just Benjamin, and then his dad dies. And they're like, oh, man, this was what Joseph's been waiting for. He just wanted to see his dad. He's really going to get us now. But listen to this interaction in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph's holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before, before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers' transgressions and, and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. And do you remember why they hated him? There's a few things. His daddy's favorite. But also they were jealous. And they're going to put him in the pit. They say, let's silence that, ki- that dreamer. Let's kill the dreamer. Let's see what becomes of his dreams if he's no longer alive. And they're mad because they had to bow a knee to him. And then here, Genesis 50, we see his brothers came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we're your slaves. What a contrast. They're so entitled, they aren't anymore. Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so in the end, their knees bowed, just like the dream said. And this boy became king was gracious, and what they intended for evil, God used for good. And now let's think about some of these amazing connections. So we, we, we told this whole story, we've got through this whole thing, and now let's, let's just look at all these different ties back to Jesus. Joseph was betrayed for the price of a slave and paid for with silver. Jesus was betrayed with silver, that was the price of a slave. So the cost of a slave is how much Jesus was betrayed for as well. Judas suggested the idea of selling his brother And the Greek name for Judah is Judas, sold out Jesus. Joseph was falsely accused, Jesus was too. Joseph was punished, Jesus was punished. Joseph and Jesus both began their ministry at the age of 30. All knees bowed to Joseph, all knees will bow to Jesus. He was given a new name, meaning Savior. Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him, but Jesus' own people, the Jews, did not recognize him either. The evil intended by his brothers, God meant for good and salvation. Joseph's brothers found favor not because of their own worth, but because of Joseph. Similarly, we have worth before God not because we're good, but because Jesus makes us worthy. And Joseph's brothers later repented for what they did to him. And so these connections, there's more. You saw there's a piece of paper as you walked in. It's got two pages of papers. It just shows all of these ties. Some are more like, whoa, that's amazing. And some are like, oh, you're stretching a little bit there. But you, you see, there's all this stuff that's pointing to Jesus, to this story. And just like we talked about the Avengers Endgame, that's what this story of Joseph is. It's one more connecting piece that makes what Jesus did in the cross, the redemption that came from Jesus, so much greater. It makes it so amazing. We get this fuller picture And so what I want to do is I want to look at what are a few lessons we can learn from Joseph? What are some things as we look at Joseph that we can learn even about Jesus and about ourselves? And so there's three points that we're going to talk about to finish tonight. First, we know Jesus rescued better because of Joseph's rescue. 
So we understand Jesus' rescue because of Joseph's rescue. We know Jesus' forgiveness better because of Joseph's forgiveness. And we know God has a plan for us because God had a plan for Joseph. So let's start out with that first one. We know Jesus' rescue better. As we look at all these characters in the story to start with, uh, let's look at the people that stand out. And the, pers- the people that stand out the most to me are the person. It could be Joseph, but really it's the brothers. The brothers are the ones that are like, what is happening? They, they kill their brother. They kill their own brother. I think, what would it take for you to want to kill your brother? Not like punch him, like, I'm going to kill you because I had an older brother, and I'm sure I said that at times. But to really want to kill him. And not just that, but, but to have all of your brothers agree with you. How much more do you have to hate? Okay, so it's this, it's this different level. And then to go through with it, it's a special kind of bitterness, a special kind of darkness that was in them. It had to have been so extreme. And so I think they're the, the stars in a bad way, the villains, the brothers. And as I read a story like this, what I do is I place myself in the narrative. I can't help it. I just put myself right in there. How do I fit into all of this? What can I learn from the character? What do I want to be like? And so uh, when I read about the brothers, I think, man, those guys are idiots. I would never do that. Surely I'm not that wicked. Uh, who am I like? Oh, Joseph. <laughs> I'm like Joseph. Of course I'm like Joseph. You know, he served well as a slave. He didn't even deserve to be a slave. He, he served well. He, he didn't fight back to his brothers. He resisted temptation with Potiphar's wife. He was good to the king. He ruled everything. Joseph's the man. Uh, I'm like Joseph. I want to be like Joseph. He was patient. He trusted God. Uh, let's take the same parallel we skip ahead to Jesus' time. You look at Jesus' life, and, and I often struggle to understand what's happening with the Jews. They're so jealous of Jesus' ministry. Uh, they discount his miracles. They say, you've come from Satan. They're proud. They tell him uh, that the laws of, of man, the laws they've created, that you need to fulfill these laws so that you can fulfill God's laws. And he's like, nah. And eventually their jealousy, it catches up with them, and they kill Jesus. They kill him. And I think, man, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like those guys. I want to be like, like Jesus. Jesus is the man. Jesus forgives. He loves. Even when people don't deserve it, he still chooses to love them. I'm not like the Jews. I'm probably, I'm more like Jesus. And this is the first hard truth that we all have to come to face, myself included. In the story of Joseph, I am more like the brothers, and you are more like the brothers than you are like Joseph. And with Jesus, you're more like the Jews than you are like Jesus. The person to connect with, it's not the hero, it's the villain. That's the people that we connect with. And this is clear throughout scripture. I mean, as, as you read, all throughout scripture, you, you see the sin of man. You see that we, we come from this line of sin, this path of sin, this, this lineage since Adam of sin. Jesus himself, he, he, he's at the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, man, even if you, you hate, you've already murdered in your heart. You, you, you lust after someone, you've committed adultery. Do you really think that you're good? Are you really the hero? No, you're the villain. You're the villain. And so the reason that Jesus has to go to the cross is not because we're so good, it's because we're so bad. The reason Joseph had to die for his brothers is not because his brothers were good, because his brothers were wicked and evil. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, died to sins, 
we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you're like sheep going astray, but you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. How are we healed? We're healed because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. That's our healing. That's our only hope. That's my hope and that's your hope. How are Joseph's brothers taken care of? Not by their own good works. They would have starved to death in Canaan. No, they're saved by their brother who chooses to forgive. And so my hope is as you read this story, you start to resonate differently. And as you do that, as you get to a different level on the betrayal of Joseph and you connect yourself with his brothers, you start to see what Jesus did at this great length. Man, Jesus did even, even more. And, and the application, I believe, is that inevitably it will lead to some degree of an emotional response. I'm not a hyper-emotional person. You, you know, you start talking about kids, you might get me worked up a little bit, but in general, but as you learn about what Jesus did on your behalf, it will lead to some feelings inside of you. It will lead to thankfulness for your forgiveness. It'll be tough to be bitter because you'll be so thankful. It'll, it'll remove a sense of entitlement because you feel indebted. Man, how could I ever do enough? God, you've, you've been so good to me. And then, greatest of all, you'll feel loved. You love me enough, Jesus, that you would go to the cross for me. Joseph loved his brothers enough, even though they were horrible to him, that he would feed them, that he would give them their money back and send them home. And this is the great truth about the story of Joseph, is that we understand what Jesus did on the cross a little bit more, and it changes us. We know his rescue better because of Joseph's rescue. Second, we know Jesus' forgiveness better because of Joseph. We know Jesus' forgiveness better because of Joseph. And you'll see this with Jesus. He often connects money. He uses money because we all understand money to, to give analogies and to share stories. And so he does that here. I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit. As the story unfolds with Joseph, let's go back to Joseph. As it unfolds with Joseph, we have this Genesis 15 where it says that Abram, God says to Abram, they're going to be in this foreign land 400 years they're going to leave. That has to come true. It's going to come true. What God could have done is he could have still used Joseph, and Joseph didn't have to take this winding, difficult, suffering, ugly path. It could have been like, Canaan's out of food, Egypt's got food, he goes over there, Pharaoh sees him, likes him, he gets put second. It could have been that easy. Like, it didn't have to be uh, slavery, prison, uh, another type of prison. It didn't have to be the way that it was. And so, but God, he's, he's working this plan out. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't curse his brothers. He does the opposite. And so when Jesus gets nailed to the cross, God, he, he, he set it up. He's designed it. It's part of his plan for forgiveness. And so as he's up there, Jesus, he doesn't get bitter. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Father. They don't get it. They don't understand and you can connect with Joseph brothers, you can connect more with Jesus, that God wanted to use this plan for forgiveness. And so there's two aspects of forgiveness here that are important, and this is where the money comes in. The first is that you have to know, when you look at this, you, you will know better how much you've been forgiven. As you look at the story, you'll know how much you've been forgiven. We all like to see ourselves in the best light. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And as we read stories like these, we can connect with the hero, not the evil one, but the person that Jesus fought against most in his short three-year ministry, it wasn't people with all these outward sins. It was people who had wickedness inside. It was the religious elite. It was those who thought they were a somebody. That's the ones that Jesus spoke most harshly about. And so he's in the house of Simon. This is in Luke chapter 7. 
And there's this woman, this prostitute, who's at his feet and she's wiping Jesus' feet. This has been so awkward, but she's wiping his feet with her hair. He's trying to eat dinner. And Simon's like, if he knew who that was, he would not allow this. This wouldn't be flying. And so she's, she's wiping and Jesus, he reads his thoughts and he says, hey, Simon, say that someone had a $500 debt, someone had a $50 debt, and they're both erased. Who would love more? Simon's like, duh, the, the bigger debt. And then Jesus, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who's just forgiven a little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And so as you see yourself rightly, as you connect with the fact that Jesus went to the cross for what? For my sin. It was as much for my sin of pride and self-righteousness and all the other things I don't want to talk about as it was for the prostitute, as it was for Joseph's brothers, as it was for Potiphar's wife. Jesus went to the cross because of sin, my sin. And the the debt is large. My debt is large. And so the more I can connect with how big my debt was, the more I'm able to love other people. And so when I recognize the greatness of my debt, I'm able to love, which relates to the second aspect of forgiveness. Is as you love, you know that you can and you should forgive. You can and you should forgive. And so Matthew 18, it tells another story. Jesus, he shares this other story. He says there was a king and, and, and this guy had, had a debt, like the U.S. national debt. It was ginormous. It was never going to be paid back. And the man comes and he says, forgive this debt. And he begs the king and he begs the king and he begs the king. And then he says, fine, I'll forgive. I'll let it go. I'll, 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 I'll incur your debt. That's what forgiveness is. I'll incur your debt. Great. So the guy leaves. The burden is gone. He walks out and he sees somebody who has a debt to him. And he says, give me my money. <laughs> I don't have it. Give me my money. I don't have it. I'm going to put you in jail. And so the king, he hears about this injustice and and he goes to this man. He says, what are you doing? What do you mean what I'm doing? What are you doing? And in verse 32, this is what he says. Then after he had summoned him, the master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father, will do to you unless every one of you forgives your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. And so the, the point of this story that Jesus is making is that, is that the, the amount that's been forgiven for you is incredible. Like there's, there's no way that you could ever repay the debt of what Jesus did on the cross. When, when he takes all of your sin on the cross, you can't pay that back. There's, there's not enough things that you could do to redeem that. And so I put my arms out and I think this is how much Jesus forgave you. But it's more and it's more and it's more and it's more. And then when we see other people that sin against us, the point is we've been free. if you've been forgiven by Christ, you put your faith in Jesus that what he did on the cross was for your sin. That's how much you've been forgiven. And so as we see someone else who sins against us and we get bitter, it doesn't make any sense. Because this much 
and now this much. And, and the indication there is that you don't really understand how much you've been forgiven because if you really got it, you, you wouldn't live the way that you're living. You wouldn't get bitter. And I think this is a, a hard truth for people to hear because what you think, and I get it, uh, I don't, I sort of get it, is you think you don't know what I've been through because people have been through horrible, horrendous, horrific things. I've, I've heard the most wicked stories that I can't believe human beings would do to one another. And that may have happened to people here. Things you're like, I'm too ashamed to even talk about what happened to me. I could never forgive the person that did that to me. My whole life has been ruined. My whole life has been shaped because of this thing. And I think what Jesus would say to you is, I forgave you. You killed me. You put me to the cross and I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you as much as I possibly can. How can you not forgive this thing? And, and Joseph's story, I think it helps shape this. It helps understand this because what his brothers did to him was about as bad as it gets. There's not much worse you could do than what his brothers did to him. Now, God used it and shaped it and worked it and, and, and even planned it. But, but when you see that, man, that wickedness, now that means that, that as bad things happen to me, I can forgive too. And there's a promise here. And this is actually a negative promise. What does it say? So also my heavenly father will do to you. What will he do to you? He says the jailers will torture this servant. So my heavenly father will do to you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. God's call is towards forgiveness. And we understand that better because Joseph was able to forgive and Jesus is able to forgive you. And so we know forgiveness better because of Joseph's forgiveness. Finally, Last point, we're almost done here. We know God has a plan for us because of his plan for Joseph. God has a plan for you. And you'll see this thread all throughout the summer, I'm sure. But verse 19, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result. What's the present result? The survival of many people. And I think what's compelling here is not that God uses evil for good. What's compelling here is that God planned it for good. That's what it says. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And it was, it was through this situation that the 12 tribes survived, the remnant survived, that eventually would come out of Egypt to fulfill that prophecy. And so he's got a plan for Joseph. And you continue, you look forward, and God's got a plan for Jesus. And the creation Lord, he knew this is what he's going to have to do. And Jesus knew it too. Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking. He says that he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. He knew, I'm going to die. This is what has to happen but this is what I've come for. This is what I've, I'm gonna give myself to. I've been born to die. I've been born to take the pain of the world on my shoulders on the cross, to suffer the wrath of God. And in his sacrifice, he saves not just this little area, but Jesus offers salvation for the world. And this is important because it's not just Joseph and Jesus, these big dogs, and then God doesn't care about you. Like, it's not, uh, it's easy to think that the story stops with Jesus. Like, okay, the Savior's come and this is it. This is God's plan and the redemption is here and it's, it's over. It's like, no, actually what God has a plan for is you. It continues right here, Des Moines, Iowa, DMAC, Grandview, Drake, it goes on. Acts 17, 
From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has, has determined their appointed times, their boundaries of where they live. He did this that they might seek God. Perhaps they might reach out and just find him. They just have to reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Why has God brought you here? He wants you just to reach out and find him. Why has God put your neighbors in your life? You might, they might reach out and find him. How about being born whenever most of you were born? <laughs> about the time I was going to college and getting saved. Why did God do that? That you'd be here tonight. Why did God save me? That I could be here and I could preach and I could give you hope. Psalm 139. It says, for you created my inward parts. There's amazing stuff in Psalm 139, but then he goes on, he says, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And God, he made you, not just, he, he knit you together, he formed your mother's womb, and you're his workmanship created for good works. This is Ephesians 2.10. For his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That means that as I speak in this microphone, the point of the mic is it would go in here and it would do its thing and it would amplify sound. Go in the speakers and sound will come out. It's not to shine a light. It's not to hold a piece of paper. It's, it's, that's what it is. It's a microphone. You are created as this workmanship. So your talents, your skills, what's unique about you, the way that you're able to love and connect with other people, God made you like that on purpose. Here in Des Moines, on purpose. You're his workmanship made with a purpose. Why am I getting all that into all that? Well, Joseph knew this. He understood it. He says, hey, listen, you meant it for evil, but God planned it for good. No matter where you're at in the story of your life, God is, is planning, he's working, he's shaping things around you. I like how Pastor Vody Bakum said, this is how he described it, he says, no matter where your story ends up, you must find its significance in the ultimate portrait of God's redemption and rescue. Otherwise, you're setting up for something far less significant and have completely missed your greatest need. He says, your life, it should fit into God's redemptive plan. And if it doesn't fit in, then you're missing. You don't get your greatest need and the need of the world around you. Find your significance in that. And on a personal note, the story of Joseph, it's resonated with me because I feel like my life fell into place when I faced the hardest injustice of my life, at least to that point in my life. See, growing up, I had the perfect family. Uh, I grew up in, in uh, the second best small town in America, Owatonna, Minnesota. What's up? Promised land. And uh, we had good education. We had good hospitals. We had good pizza. Uh, I lived by the elementary school, and so I could walk to school every day. We had a yellow lab. Uh, I had a brother, older brother, older sister. My parents had good, good jobs. They never fought. We were living the American dream right up until about ninth grade, and then we weren't. Uh, my mom, she had an emotional affair and my world was wrecked. My family destroyed. And all the security I had built up in my family, the security I had built up in myself, all this confidence I had, gone. At least a crack. The crack began. The, the hole in the dam started. It began to deteriorate. And the thing is, I wasn't a Christian. I went to church. I went to Young Life. I did Christian camps. But I didn't get it. Religion was just another good thing that good people do. That was me. And so I came to college with that mindset, came down, I went to Drake, and um, my goal, be a good person, get a job, make money, do my thing. And I was confronted with the gospel again. I was confronted with my sin and the real message of the gospel. 
that even though I think I'm good because I try to look, compare myself to others, the reality is if you compare my life to Jesus, I'm hopeless. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good. I'm not good. And for the first time, when I got to Drake, I realized, man, that's true. I'm actually not good. And, and if I died today, what I would deserve is not to be with God. I'm not entitled. Actually, what I deserve is to go to hell. That's what I deserve. Because all my, my good deeds, they don't add up like I think they do. I'm Joseph's brothers. I'm like the Jews. I put Jesus on the cross. And so my freshman year at Drake, I decide the Bible's true. The word of God is true. My, my preferences are not. And I repented of my sin. I put my faith in Christ. And things changed for me. And I, I, I share that because I believe that I began to be humbled the moment my family fell apart. And I wouldn't have said that at the time. I was like, oh yeah, this is going to lead me to Jesus. You know, it, it was, this sucks. I hate this. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like what it's doing to my siblings, to my parents. But now, once I became a Christian, I look back and I think, wow, I think God was using that. I think he was changing me. He was developing me. He was preparing me. And what, what they had, and they didn't plan for evil, but what was evil in my life my parents' divorce, God planned it for good. And I don't wish a divorce to anyone, but I think that perspective that you see that God, he's, he's working these things out. He's got a plan for you. He wants to use you. You're part of his redemptive story. I finally understood that. And so I love the story of Joseph, the God, that Joseph will see, yeah, that's right. It was tended for evil. God planned it for good. And so what I want all of you to know tonight is that God, he's working in you. He's working in the circumstances around you. You're here at a specific time, at a specific place. And so all these people who are in your sphere, they're also there on purpose. God knows about them. God cares about them. Even your enemies, God cares about them too. And he just wants them to reach out and find him. You're part of his plan and redemption for the world. And so if you see yourself in any other way, you shortchange God and you shortchange yourself. So what can we take from this? Just to review, what are the things that we saw? We saw that, that Joseph's rescue was good. Jesus' rescue was better. Joseph's forgiveness was awesome. Jesus' forgiveness is more incredible. God's got a plan for Joseph. God had a plan for Jesus. God has a plan for you. Uh, let's pray. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.